He sat underneath a tree, mumbling to himself. He was drunk, and he was in his military dress uniform. Lieutenant Colonel U.S. Marine Corps Bull Meacham was a decorated fighter pilot. The problem was is that there was no war going on. He didn't have a battle to fight. The United States was stuck somewhere between the Korean War and the Vietnam War, so this decorated Marine Corps fighter pilot decided to wage a battle within the confines of his own home. He had a beautiful wife, four incredible kids, the oldest, a son named Ben. Now, Ben was a high school basketball star and a solid young man of character and integrity. All Ben wanted to do was to earn his father's love, but he'd never earned that love because his father, Lieutenant Colonel Bull Meacham, fought the demons of his childhood, demons of his own father who was never satisfied with him, demons of a father who abused him. One day, Bull came home from a night at the officer's club out with the boys, and when he came home, he decided to notch it up, ratchet up the notch of the battle in his house. He started beating his wife. The kids heard the screams. They came running downstairs. Uh, the, the youngest girl wrapped her arms around his leg. She's trying to pull him off, and Ben comes downstairs and grabs Bull, and he throws him against the wall. When Bull hits the wall, something clicks, and he runs. A few minutes later, Ben goes out on the front porch. His mom's standing out there, and he says, I hate him. I hope he dies. She says, no, you don't. Go get your dad. Go get your dad. So Ben reluctantly, yet obediently, went to find his father, and he met him underneath that tree. As Ben was approaching his dad, he heard his dad having this conversation with an imaginary person. And as he got closer, he realized who that person was. Bull sitting there saying, yes, sir. I'm sorry, sir. I won't do it again, sir. Yes, sir. And then he starts crying. Ben just comes up to him, says, come on, dad, let's go home. Let's go home. I think I understand now. So he picks up his dad, and he's walking home. And as he's walking with his dad under his arms, he says, I love you, dad. Well, that's all Bull can take. Bull pushes him away, then comes at him, and he's swinging. But Ben's not drunk, and Ben's fast. And Ben's ducking and weaving, saying, I love you, dad. I love you, dad. You cannot stop me from loving you, dad. Finally, Ben's relentless love causes his father just to collapse in his arms. He puts his arm around him, and he carries him home. That story came to mind as I was putting today's teaching together, and I got to ask you a question. Have you ever considered how much God loves you? Have you ever considered the height, the depth, the width, the breadth of God's love for you? If you get anything at all out of today's teaching, get this. Nothing, absolutely nothing can separate you from the love of God. Absolutely nothing. There is nothing under the sun in the heavens that can separate you from the love of God. No matter how beautiful your life is, no matter how bountiful your life is, no matter how ugly or no matter how humiliating your life is, nothing can separate you from the love of God. His love is not based on our performance. Well, God's got a lot to say about that as we hit week eight of our series called Romans, Essentials of Faith. It's in this series in which we're pulling apart Paul's letter 
to the Roman church, a, a church that he had never visited before. But he was giving them the basic doctrines, the essentials of faith. So as you look at this 16-chapter book or letter, it can be broken up this way. The first 11 chapters are all about our foundations of faith, what we should believe. But then the last five chapters, chapters 12 through 16, are all about guidelines of faith, it kind of, what, how we're supposed to behave both individually and as a church. If you look at the first eight chapters that we've been going through each week, those first five chapters all talk about what God has accomplished through Jesus on the cross so we could be made free. And then you hit 6, 7, and 8. And I always recommend to anyone, when you read the book of Romans, read 6, 7, and 8 together in one fell swoop. Because what chapter 6 is all about is how we're dead to sin. But then you hit chapter 7. You see, we got this thing called flesh on us. So we do those things we don't want to do. And we don't do those things we're supposed to do. But thank God for chapter 8. Chapter 8 is the climax of this book of Romans. And in chapter 8, we see that there are two bookends within it. Bookend 1, there's no condemnation for those in Jesus. And bookend 2, where we're going to land on today, there's no separation from the love of God for us. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. So here's how we're going to roll today. We're going to start out not in the book of Romans. We're actually going to start out in the book of John. And in the book of John, we're going to talk about what God's love is all about. We're going to roll from there to the book of Romans, and then i got to warn you, we're going to go down a rabbit trail. It's a rabbit trail we need to go down, and it's in the Old Testament. It's in Psalm 23, and what we're going to find is that Psalm ties directly into our teaching in Romans 8, and then we'll wrap it up. And my hope is, at the end of the day, you will walk out of here in confidence knowing that nothing you do, there's nothing under the sun that can separate you from the love of God. Okay, so we're going to kick off in John verses, uh, chapter 3, verses 16 to 18. So turn in your Bibles uh, to John 3, and, and let me set the scene for what's going on. Jesus is early on in his early ministry. He's probably 30 years old, 30-ish years old. He had a three-year and some change uh, earthly ministry, and he's within the first few months of that ministry. And he's doing miracles. He's saying things, and the Holy Spirit is drawing people to him. And the Holy Spirit draws a guy named Nicodemus a leader of the Pharisees. The Pharisees are the leaders of the, the Jewish religion. And Nicodemus comes to meet Jesus in the middle of the night, and Jesus has a conversation with him in which he plants the flag on the territory called God's love. Let's look at this, John 3, 16 to 18. Very familiar verses for most of you. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. Let's look at this thing called love. So often we can think of God's love that, that, that He gave and then He loved, but that's backwards. You see, God loved us. He loved the world. He loved everyone who was lost in sin so much that He gave His Son. Love is an essential part of his character. If you look at the character of God, you see a bunch of things. You see eternality. You see his faithfulness. You see his goodness, his holiness, his justice, and his truth. But all of those are trumped and wrapped around by this one thing called the love of God. God looked upon us, and even though we were still in sin, he loved us, and he gave us his one and only son. 
Many of you have heard the sermons about God's love. There's a special Greek word for God's love. It's called agape love. Agape love is an unconditional love. What it really means is it's God holding us in high esteem despite our imperfections. It's unconditional love. And here's a truth we're going to land on today. God's love drove him to action. His love for you, his love for me, his love for a lost world drove him to action because God love he gave for God so loved the world. Agape love, it knows no boundaries, it knows no limits. It's a self-sacrificing love in that when the entity or person giving the love gives that love and that love is not received well, and in fact, the, the other person rejects that love, it doesn't affect the way the person giving that love still looks at that person. Let me give you an example of that. Uh, my wife and I, uh, Linda, we've been married 27 years. Uh, we've got three incredible kids who are all grown now. But the first five years of our marriage, I was in First Special Forces Group down at jo Joint Base Lewis-McChord, and I was gone about 250 to 300 days out of the year. So through miracles, we were able to conceive kids because I was gone so long. And the, the cool thing about it was I decided at that time, at that time, I was going to do something special for my kids every Saturday that I was home. So I started making them pancakes, and it became our tradition all the way until they left the house. Well, in 2006, uh, we'd been in, I'd been in the Army more than 20 years at that time. In 2006, we went to South Korea for our second assignment. We had been over there before, and so we had only been gone a couple years, and we, we showed up in South Korea, and it was a really hard assignment. Uh, the kids were at a different age. Kyle was in high school, Allie Middle School, Katie Elementary School. And at that time, most of their friends had moved, and it was just a new situation. So, of course, we're living in our temporary quarters, and I decided to make pancakes. And, of course, I burned the pancakes. Well, it's no big deal for Kyle and Katie. They just smothered it with more syrup, more syrup, more sugar. But Allie's allergic. She's our middle school. She was our middle schooler, 12 years old. She's allergic to syrup and to jams and things like that, so she couldn't do that. So Kyle and Katie chowed down. Then Allie walks in, and she's grumpy, and she's 12, and she's going through changes. And she looks at him, and she goes, these pancakes are burned. And I said, yes, they are, and now they're in the trash. And she went, oh, you're ruining my life. And she ran in her room crying. <laughs> what? I didn't respond with unconditional love. <laughs> What's my point? Have you ever thought about how God sometimes gives you things that you consider are burned pancakes? It's a perfect provision. And he gives you what you need, but your response, or my response, I've done this too, is, I can't believe you've done this, God. You're ruining my life. And that doesn't affect God because his love is unconditional. His love never starts. His love never ends. It's eternal. God loves each of us as if we're the only ones to love. He would still go to the cross if there was just one person on this planet left because of his love. You will never go a day on this earth unloved by God. Let's look at verse 18. Jesus continues in this conversation with Nicodemus. He who believes in him is not condemned, and that's important. But he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son 
of God. Believe here, it's an important word. It, it, it doesn't mean to have an intellectual agreement that Jesus is Lord. I'm a Greek geek. I like, the, I like digging into the, the original language of the New Testament. And the, the actual word that's used here is a fun word to say, pisties. Say it with me, pisties. Yeah, pisties. Pisties is a cool word because it means to be convicted, to, be, to, to trust in your very spirit that something is true. When we believe in Jesus as Savior and Lord, we trust in our spirit. We believe that that's true. So what's the opposite of a believer? It's an unbeliever. An unbeliever, unbelievers are those who reject or ignore Jesus completely, not those who receive Jesus and they have a bad day or they hit those seasons of, of dry faith. See, our love will ebb and flow, but the love of God doesn't. It's unconditional love. So our verse here says, he who believes in him, who, is, who trusts in him, is to, who is convicted in him, is not condemned. So what that means is those who don't believe in him are, and that's a tough reality. So that leads us to probably what, what I consider one of the most, if not the most powerful chapters in all of God's word, Romans chapter 8, verse 1. Let's look at this. Romans chapter 8, last week, Pastor Brian hit home this first verse. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Remember, verse 18 says, he who believes in him is not condemned. So there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Paul's reiterating those words from John 3, 16 to 18 in just one phrase. There's no condemnation for those in Christ. Christ Jesus. It's the love of Jesus that sets us free. So God looks at us. We receive Jesus as Savior and Lord, and He doesn't look at us with all of our imperfections and flaws, because when we have Jesus in our lives, He looks at us and He sees Jesus, and He says, not guilty, not guilty. So Paul, in Romans 8, makes some incredible statements, and it's an incredible chapter, as I said, but here's the thing, when you look at Romans chapter 8, I think you need to look at it uh, with a, a primary lens of encouragement, understanding that the Roman church was not only going through suffering, it was going to go through horrific suffering. The people reading this letter, would a, a big chunk of them would be dead in just a couple of years because of this guy named Nero who would go out to kill every Christian in Rome. So that's one lens that we got to look at Romans chapter 8 with, but a, a lens of encouragement during suffering. Another thing we got to do, though, is always remember that, that God shows himself in so many ways. And in this chapter, we see the Trinity, the triune God, God the Father, who's revealed by the Son, whom we get to experience through the Holy Spirit. God the Father, whose Son, Jesus, shows God's character, his eternality, his faithfulness, his goodness, his holiness, his justice, and his truth. But most importantly, he shows his love. And we get to experience that 24 hours a day, seven days a week through the Holy Spirit. So let's look at, uh, Pastor Brian covered verses 1 through 17. Today, let's look at verses 18 through 39. And I'm just going to hit a handful of these first verses before we land on the meat of the teaching. Let's look at verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. The Roman church, as I said, was suffering, and they needed encouragement. Skip to, to verse 26. 
Because when you go through suffering, this is a great verse to hang on to. Likewise, the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, helps us in our weaknesses, in our sufferings, in the crap fest of life. For we do not know what we should pray for as we ought. But the Spirit Himself makes intercessions for us with groanings which can't be uttered. So even when we're too broken to pray, God's Holy Spirit is praying for us. I've shared here before that, that I suffer from uh, depression and anxiety. And uh, at one time before I went on some meds for that, there would be a time when I would be so depressed I couldn't even utter a word. And what's so beautiful is how in that time I could have peace because the Holy Spirit was praying for me. Skip to verse 28 because it's a very popular verse. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to His purpose. Anyone can bring beauty out of beauty. Anyone can do that. But I believe in my heart and soul. I'm convicted. I pisties in my heart and soul that only God can bring beauty out of ashes. That time when you're just busted, where you're broken, you've failed miserably, that time in which your, your child has died or is going through something. That time when your marriage dissolves. And God, through Jesus, takes those broken shards of glass and can bring them together. So then Paul asks a series of questions. Seven questions total from 31 to 39. Let's look at some of these. Verse 31. He says, what then shall we say to these things, to all these difficult things in our lives, all the, the, the horrible things that happen to us in our lives? What can we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? And he lays out the case, not like a trial lawyer in front of a judge, but a trial lawyer in front of the jury to convince them how powerful and how everlasting God's love is. So he says, verse 34, he, he brings it all back to this whole point of condemnation. Remember, Jesus said, he who believes in him is not condemned. And Paul kicks off the chapter with, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Verse 34, who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. I, I really like the New Living Translation of this. Who then will condemn us? No one. No one, for Christ Jesus died for us and was raised to life for us. And he's sitting in the place of honor at God's right hand, pleading for us. Do you see God the Father revealed by the Son, the invisible God revealed by the visible Son? And we can be convicted of his love for us because he gave us his Holy Spirit and we can experience him 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Not only does God love, his, love us so much that he sends us his son, he refuses to condemn us. Let's look at verses 35 to 39 and think of encouragement and suffering. Paul continues with these questions. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Paul is quoting Psalm 44. Psalm 44 is a warrior's psalm. It's about this battle-weary warrior who has just been crushed. And he's saying, God, help me. I'm getting slaughtered. We're all getting slaughtered. Help me. And isn't it funny? how our suffering and God's love walk arm in arm down the same street. 
Paul continues. He says, yet in all these things, all these difficult things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Paul makes two very important declarations here. First declaration is is that nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. And then the second one is, is that we're more than conquerors. We are more than conquerors. So as I said, I'm a Greek geek. And if you look at the Greek language, they have certain ways of phrasing stuff that really can't be translated like very, I don't know, directly in some ways. More than conquerors. A neat translation is hyper-conquerors or super-conquerors. Think about that. You are more than a conqueror. You are a super-conqueror. A super-conqueror, when you go through something, it's like you get to put on your cape and you got this SC on your chest because you're a super-conqueror. But here's the thing. You're not a super-conqueror because God plucks you out of the suffering. As I said in, in my teaching at the end of our conversation series on Memorial Day weekend, we talked about how a good God can allow suffering. And one of the things we talked about was in suffering, God rarely pulls us out, but he never, he never allows us to go through suffering by ourselves. He will never leave us or, fa- or forsake us. He walks with us in that suffering. It, we're super conquerors not because of our strength or our character. We are super conquerors because of the strength and character of Jesus. It all comes back to the love of Christ. And then Paul wraps this section up with two very, very powerful verses, verses 38 to 39. And this is your challenge for this week is to memorize these verses because I'm convinced that when you get these verses in your heart and you go through something, and God will pull these verses up into your mind and give you that encouragement that you need. He says these words, For I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities, nor powers. Uh, Some of your translations say, nor angels, nor demons. Nor things present, nor things to come. Nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord, persuaded. It's, It's a word like believed. Not only does it mean to be convicted, not only does it mean to be, to, to trust, it means to be convinced convinced beyond the shadow of a doubt. Paul was convinced that nothing could separate us from the love of Christ. Now, Paul had the grease. As Pastor Bob talked about when we looked at Romans chapter 7, he, was, he gave the background on Paul that, that Paul was a Pharisee of Pharisees. He trained under this guy named Gamaliel. Gamaliel was the Yoda of Pharisees, and his Jedi warrior was the man, the myth, the legend, Saul, who would become Paul. To get to that point, Paul would have had to have memorized the first five books of the Hebrew Bible, the Torah, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. He also would have memorized all 150 Psalms, as well as had committed to memory the the major prophets' writings, as well as a big chunk of the minor prophets' writings. So he knew Scripture. And that Scripture was, was married to an experience that he had with Jesus on the road to Damascus. So you see those two things together are married to his faith, and his faith bound his will and God's will together. And he's convicted, he's convinced, period, that nothing can separate us from the love of Jesus. So he lists out everything under the sun and in the universe that could separate us from the love of God. Death, life, angels, demons, heights, depths, time, things of the present, things of the future, any, three, any created thing. 
It's not like our tax code where you got a bunch of loopholes. On this one, nothing, absolutely nothing can separate you from the love of God. And because there's no condemnation for those in Christ, it makes sense that there's absolutely no separation, especially for those in Christ. It's all about that grace, about that grace, about that grace. Here's what I mean. Sin brought about condemnation. Grace brought about justification. Justification, big church word. Pastor Scott hit that one home when we looked at Romans chapter 5. We spend a big chunk of time talking about justification in, in simple terms. Jesus goes to the cross. We receive him as Savior and Lord. And when we receive him, our, our accounts are made clean. And they're never going to be accounted to again. We're never going to be in debt again, the, the, in, in, in debt with God again. Our account is set. Sin brought about condemnation. Grace through Jesus brought about justification. Sin brought about death. Grace brought about the ability to live right wisely. Grace brought about righteousness. And every week Pastor Bob has taught, he's said every time we say righteous, righteous is four words. It is what? Wow. Okay, the Saturday night crowd is a pretty mellow crowd, and they spanked you on that. Okay, let's try that again. Four words righteousness is? Yes. Good job. Sin brought about death. Grace brought about righteousness. Sin brought about separation, shame, and misery. Grace. Grace brought about reconciliation, hope, and joy. It's, it's what I call the bookends of Romans chapter 8. You've got no condemnation and no separation. So now the criminal stands in front of the judge. How many of you have had to stand in front of a judge? I have a couple times for traffic court, and it's been ugly because I've been guilty every time. And I stand in front of him, and he's like, oh, is he going to say not guilty? What's he going to do? And instead of the judge saying guilty, the judge says not guilty, but one step further. He says, I love you. Can you imagine a judge saying, I love you? But that's what God does. And it begs a question. It's one I've had to wrestle with a lot. It's a, it's a question we get as pastors a lot. But here's the question. What happens when I fail? Does God withdraw his love when I fail? Is his wrath ready to come down on me because I've failed? What if I die on a bad day when I'm having a, a rough season? How does that work? We need to talk about it because it ties into our teaching to do, to, today. So to do that, what we're going to do is we're going to roll over to Psalm 23. And, and what's cool about this is we're going to see the Old Testament and New Testament coming together in a really cool way. Psalm 23, it's a very popular psalm. In fact, it's probably the most popular psalm written by a guy named David. David writes it from the perspective of a shepherd. Before David was a leader, warrior, and king, David was a shepherd. Very famous verses. Look, look at verses 1 through 4. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. That means I'm, I'm content. Even when I get burned pancakes, I'm content with what God gives me. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Okay, so then verse 4 we hit verse 4, one of the most popular verses in all of Scripture. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. And so often, for me, I'm like, okay, 5 and 6, blah, blah, blah. Or I don't even read them at all, but 5 and 6. Look at 5 and 6. 
through this lens, a lens of failure. Look at five and six through a time that you don't think you measure up. Verse five, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies, in the presence of my failures, in the presence of the time in which I caved to temptation because I don't do the things I'm supposed to do and I'm not doing, and I'm doing the things I'm not supposed to do. You anoint my head with oil, my cup runs over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. As I said, David writes this from the perspective of a shepherd. Jesus said, I'm the good shepherd, and my sheep know my voice. Well, in David's time, a shepherd wouldn't just send his sheep into a pasture. He'd prepare the pasture beforehand. He'd prepare the table, and there are enemies in that pasture. He'd go to make sure that there are no poisonous plants, and if there's a water source there, that that water isn't poisonous. And then he'd pull out a flask of oil, and he'd have his staff, and he'd walk around that pasture, and he'd look for holes. Because in those holes, most of the time they were occupied by a snake, the brown adder. It's about this big, and it's poisonous. And the brown adder would pop up out of a hole as as a sheep was grazing, bite it on the snout, and it would either infect the sheep or it would kill the sheep. So he'd go and he'd, he'd find a hole and he'd pour oil around that hole because the adder hates the scent of the oil. And then he'd get his sheep and one by one he'd pull them up and he'd anoint their heads with oil by putting oil on the snout of the sheep because if he misses a hole, what's going to happen? The snake's going to come out, but he, smelled, he has that scent of the oil and so he'll stay in his hole. He prepares a table for me in the presence of the adder's of life. So what? What does this mean? Guys, so often in our lives we will fail. How many of you here have failed? Let's just show a hands. Yeah, and for those of you who didn't put up your hands, you probably should put them up because Jesus said, <laughs> Jesus said, if you committed, if you lust after someone, you've committed adultery in your heart. If you get angry at someone, you've committed murder in your heart. We're all guilty. But here's the problem. We can think that, that our failures in life can separate us from the love of God. We, we think that our failures cause God to say, whoa, 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 cowboy. You know, I used to love you, but no more. That's not what happens. You see, Jesus didn't go to half of the cross just to cover our successes. He went to the full cross to cover our successes and our failures. Our failures, long-term and short-term, they don't cancel out God's love for us. But here's a problem. We think that our actions can separate us from the love of a Savior, that those adders, when they bite us on the nose, and now we feel that we're infected and we can't come unclean to a Savior as we cave to those temptations, as we do the things we don't want to do, and we don't do the things we're supposed to do. And here's a truth we got to hang on to today. We may feel unworthy, but we're never separated We may feel unworthy, but we are never separated from the love of Jesus. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. He dealt with your failures. He dealt with my failures on the cross. Let's go back to verse 6. Surely, surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord. How long? How long? Forever. Your bad days don't cancel out God's love for you. But here's something we need to remember. Nowhere in the New Testament do we see someone receiving Jesus, being convicted to trust in Jesus, and then going out and doing their own thing. 
See, Jesus, when we receive him, he's all about heart transformation, and that's a journey for our whole life on this side of eternity. So with heart transformation comes life transformation. With life transformation comes us changing our little corner of the world and bringing God's kingdom to reality. But remember this too. Never in the New Testament do we have a specific example of a person receiving Jesus. They're walking with Jesus. They're doing, they're, they're, their faith is strong, but then they hit a dry season or they have a bad day and they choke on that chicken bone and they go to hell. We don't see that either. It's Christ's performance, not yours and not mine, that saves us. Back to, to Romans chapter 6, verses 1 and 2, because this is important to remember as we look at all this theological stuff in Romans, essentials of faith. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Our eternal security is not irrespective of the lives we live. Our eternal security is not a license to sin, but we've got to get out of the performance mode. Because, we're, because of this flesh, we're going to go through difficult times. And our love may ebb and flow, but God's love never stops for us. God works His sovereignty and our faith into something amazing. We're going to talk about that a little bit more next week. And here's something that's helped me as I've delved through this type of stuff. We persevere through faith and never apart from faith. We persevere through faith and never apart from faith. What do I mean by that? We persevere through faith, even the faith the size of a mustard seed, with anything hanging on to Jesus in that time in which we're just, it's that dry season where we haven't heard from him for so long and everything else may look good. We hang on to him. And we persevere. And in faith, goodness and mercy follows us all the days of our lives. And we dwell in the house of the Lord forever. You see, nothing, absolutely nothing can separate us from the love of God. Walk in that confidence. The story was told in World War II, there was an infantry unit in close quarters combat with the Nazis. And in this infantry unit, there was a, a beloved squad leader. And in, in the, the combat, the squad leader died. Now, this beloved squad leader loved Jesus with everything he had. When they were going to their objective, they had noticed a couple kilometers back a, a church and a cemetery. So the guys in his squad went to their commander and said, hey, we want to go bury our squad leader. It was a lull in the fighting. He said, okay, go. So they went in the middle of the night, and they, they, they went to this church. They went into the cemetery, and they're digging. Well, the Catholic priest who's inside the church comes out, and he says, what are you doing? And they explain the situation. He said, well, was he Catholic? He said, no. He said, well, you can't bury him here. This is a, a cemetery only for Catholics, but here's what you can do. Just, there's a fence that separates uh, the outside from the cemetery. Just bury him just on the outside of that fence. And they're like, okay, that's, that's fine. It's better than, than being just put in a mass grave in a battlefield. So they, they dig the grave, and they bury him, they pray over him, and they go back to their unit. Well, the next day, they get their, their objective to go off to the, the, the next objective, and they got a lull in the fighting again. And they talk to their commander, and says, hey, they say, hey, we just want to go back and pay our last respects to our squad leader. He says, okay, go. Well, they get back to this church and get back to the cemetery, and they're walking the line. They're walking up and down that fence, and they can't find their friend. 
and they start arguing with each other. No, he was buried here. No, he was buried there. Well, it was, the, it was pitch black at night. Well, the Catholic priest hears this, and he comes outside. He says, what's going on? And he said, sir, please tell us where our friend is buried. And he said, you know, last night I couldn't sleep. I thought about the love you had for your friend, and it reminded me of the love that Jesus has for me. So in the middle of the night, I got up, and I moved the fence. I moved the fence. Think about those words. The fence no longer separated him from the cemetery. And this is the beauty of Jesus Christ. Jesus not only moved the fence, he destroyed the fence. Jesus demolished the fence. Go back to John 3.16, for God so loved the world, everyone, that he gave his one and only son that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have eternal life. Because of Jesus, there's no longer any separation from his love. So what about you? Right about now, you may be feeling like Bull Meacham. You're in your dress uniform, but inside you are a mess. Stuff's going on in your life that you don't want anyone to know about. And God's right there because you're, you're saying, there's no way you can love me. You're trying to earn love by performing it. You feel you don't measure up. The good news is God says, I love you. But we've got these excuses. I call them, but God's. But God, you don't understand as an addict, I keep relapsing and I keep relapsing. And I'm never going to get through this. And God says, I love you. It's not by your power not by your strength, but by the power of my Holy Spirit that you're going to be freed from this. Now walk with me as I walk with you. But God, I can't forgive myself. I've had this moral failure. I simply can't forgive myself. And God says, I love you. When you confessed with your lips and believed in your heart that I am Savior and Lord, I forgave you from all of your sins, past, present, and future, because I'm not bound by time. You're bound by time. I'm not. I love you. Now walk with me as I walk with you. Jesus destroyed the fence that separated us. Now walk in that confidence. God says, walk with me as I walk with you. No condemnation, no separation. All right, Skagit, we love you guys. Thank you for watching us, and uh, thank you for loaning us Pastor Brian last week. Uh, for those of you at Boca Raton in Florida, thanks for being part of our church family. And for those of you joining us online, we always are so glad you're watching us. But if you're not part of a church family, we ask that you get plugged into some, to some church that holds up God's name and holds up His Word as truth. Here in Bellingham, let's go ahead and stand for this closing song.